Welcome to Joe Picks, a World Cup team. In this podcast, Joe, abandoned by his U.S. men's national team, is evaluating all 32 World Cup teams to find out who he should root for in 2018. For the second half of our doubleheader, we go down under and take a look at the Socceroos from Australia. Will they hop into the round of 16, or will they be dis-koala-fied? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> States know football, but not football, it seems. So now he needs a surrogate. Dan will help him look for it. They'll have decisions to make, like how much genocide's a deal break. Joe picks a World Cup team. He's crossing borders to find out who's for him. What more could you ask for? It's time to stamp your Joe picking passport. Grab your bottle and pour. Let's hope he doesn't start a war. Dan, I was sure you were going to go with, will they be didgeridoos or didgeridons? Oh, man. That's pretty good, too, Joe. <laughs> Except for disqualified is way better. It's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Well, look. I have no complaints. Music, our music laureate, Jeff, rhymed team with heme. So, you know. So, we, so we're, we're stretching the bounds of. Uh, no, the, rhyming the bar is so high. I've got to, uh, <laughs> I need to get above that every time. All right, Joe, we're back. Australia. Now, as always, Joe, there's a drink. And now this episode is very interesting because the first time, and this is, I'm sure, going to happen many times throughout this series, but this is the first time we have a super fan from the country we're doing. Fan who, emeritus. Yes. A fan emeritus who not only is the drink category his category, but he's also submitted feedback for every other category, too. So it's going to be very interesting. We're going to get the fan perspective, the fan emeritus perspective as part of their regular job. But then we're also going to get the insider Sakaru opinion about the categories. And Joe, for starters, do you have the drink? I have the drink. So Sean picked the drink, and apparently it was not a very hard decision for him, and I will let this sound clip explain it. I'll just have a cup of coffee. Beer it is. No, I said coffee. Beer. Coffee. (laughs) B-E-R. C-O. B-A. Beer. We always rate... Towards the top of beer drinkers per capita and Australians drink to get drunk. All right. It's kind of messed up, but to get the proper Australia drinking experience, you boys need to go hard for this episode. Oh, oh no. Sean. <laughs> wow. Sean, Sean's going to be so disappointed. <laughs> Letting you down. <laughs> but I'll tell you, when I was in Australia, I went to the casino, the Crown Casino in Melbourne, and they literally would not let me in because I was too drunk. Although, instead of actually kicking you out, the guy was just like, I can't let you in. But he said, try going to another entrance and stop looking so drunk. And then (laughs) I went to another entrance, looked less drunk, and sort of made it in. But, uh, yeah, I know how to party, Sean. But anyways, he says 
He recommends Little Creatures, Coopers, or Stone and Wood are some good Australian beers. Any beer from Australia is hopefully good. However, don't get a Foster's. He's never seen anybody drink Foster's in Australia. Joe, did you get a Foster's? Well, I no, I got a Victoria Bitter, which I think is only a subsidiary oh. of Foster's. Oh, VB. Oh, my God, Joe. I drank a lot of VB in Melbourne. Perfect. Wow. I don't think VB is considered one of the uh, highest art of, of beer creation they make, but... No, no, but they did sell it at the 7-Eleven near my house. No, there you go. Wow. Look, VB, that's good. It's a beer I know and love. I consume much of that at the very casino that I was referring to before. All right. So, Joe, before we jump into the categories 1 through 12... We've got to do a little segment I like to call Homeland Handbook. Now, now, how much of this Homeland Handbook are you going to do in an Australian accent for us? I didn't even make you try Swedish. Prehistoric settlers arrived on the continent from Southeast Asia. <laughs> Damn it. I had it going for a second. Prehistoric settlers arrived on the continent from Southeast Asia at least... 40,000 years before the first Europeans began exploration in the 17th century. No formal territorial claims were made until 1770 when Captain James Cook... No, wait, 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 you're slipping into Southern Gentlemen. You can, you can stop. That was good. That was good. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta get in it. Uh, shrimp on the bobby. Uh, good day, mate. Captain James Cook... No, it's done. Captain... James Cook took possessions of the East Coast in the name of Great Britain. All of Australia was claimed as a British territory in 1828 when the creation, with the creation of the colony of Western Australia. Six colonies were created in the late 18th and 19th centuries. They federated and became the Commonwealth of Australia in 1901. The new country took advantage of its natural resources to rapidly develop agricultural and manufacturing industries and to make a major contribution to the Allied effort in World War I and II. In recent decades, Australia has become internationally competitive, has become an internationally competitive advanced market economy due in large part to economic reforms adopted in the 1980s and its location in one of the fastest growing regions of the world economy. Long-term concerns include an aging population, pressure on infrastructure, and environmental issues such as floods, droughts, and bushfires. Australia is the driest inhabited continent on Earth making it particularly vulnerable to the challenges of climate change. Australia is home to 10% of the world's biodiversity, and a great number of its flora and fauna exist nowhere else in the world. Now, Joe, when you are in Australia, you refer to a person there as an Australian, a group of Australians, and they are all also Australian. So that's easy. You probably... Nice and easy. Got it. You won't need to look at the Homeland Handbook to figure that out. The language is primarily English. The religions are Protestant, making up about a quarter of the population. Roman Catholic, making up a quarter. And then a sizable atheist population, Joe. Wow. Its capital city is, of course, smack dab right in between Sydney and Melbourne, Joe. Canberra. Now, hmm. for our segment, Joe guesses the Homeland Handbook categories. Joe? I'm ready. 
the chief export of Australia, what do you think it is? This is tough. This is tough. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think of what I have in my house that comes from Australia. I don't think I have anything in my house that comes from Australia. I don't think they make cars. I don't think that they fish. I mean, I'm sure they fish. Well, yeah, I, I'm sure they fish, right? Okay. It's big. It's big. And you and you said something in your handbook about natural resources. So what are resources? Let's guess. Uh, no one talks about like Australian steel. Like, oh, this this the building's made of of good old Australian steel. Uh, okay, I'm going to guess gold. Gold. It's gold. There's like an Australian gold rush. There was a gold rush. It's gold. Ah, wait, that was a good that was a good whistle, right? No, no. See. <laughs> So you don't actually know what the good sound. Oh, Joe, <laughs> you were so close. I would have given you either of their two chief exports. And honestly, you were so close. You were on the right track. Oh, but Joe, no credit. Their two primary exports are, of course, the exact things a country would export. This is a massive country that has huge amounts of natural resources. The first and their biggest export is actually iron ore. Which, iron ore. of course, is the primary component of that steel you said. See, <laughs> good, old, I, they, good old Australian steel. <laughs> well, they say it's Australian iron. I'm sure that iron ore goes to China where they turn it into cheap Chinese steel. But it started out as high-quality Australian iron. And their second one is coal, Joe. Good old coal. dirty Australian coal. Yeah. So, Joe... You're not doing really well in these segments, but maybe this is your chance, Joe. All you have to do is get within three out of the 32. I feel like I was in the mineral category. Oh, you were close. I I thought you were onto it. I would have given you steel had you said steel. But because, you know, that's sort of a component. But gold's just insane. There's no way they're. I mean, gold is such a bad guess because, like, even if there was a gold rush, they wouldn't be exporting billions of dollars of gold every year like they would have found all the gold by now well, what are they going to do with all the gold if they're that, not exporting it then it doesn't matter then they'd be like sitting on it and just having there's the abundant wealth. australian gold dan it's just waiting for us to go down there yeah. and get it we need to talk about wealth again <laughs> <laughs> anyways okay joe 30 go countries. i'm gonna get on a 26 hour flight to go get me some gold let's go all right yeah look just avoid the bushfires 32 countries, where do they rank in population, Joe? Okay, well, okay. See, now we have a good baseline because Sweden was in the bottom third and Australia is huge. Sydney's much bigger than anything Sweden. Sweden was 24th, so yep. you can eliminate yep. that number. It's not 24th. Yep. Not 24th. And we know it's higher, so I can eliminate everything below 24th. So... Let's say that Australia is number 13. Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, Joe. Joe. I mean, look. You're terrible at this. You just have no idea the size of any of these countries. But no. Australia, as it turns out, I mean, I think if when we get to the other some other countries uh, it'll be easier for you to understand the the size comparison but australia's in the bottom half joe they are 19th 
out of 32 in population. They've got 24.5 million people, which again, it's pretty big, but we're talking the World Cup here, and there are some pretty, pretty big countries out there. Australia, for what but it's, it's worth. But it's interesting, though, because, you know, Sweden, would you say, has like 9 billion, has like 9 million, right? Correct. And they're 24th. Yes. Only five spots away is two and a half times bigger. Yeah. There's sort of a little sweet spot. I believe, actually, Australia is the only country in the World Cup that has a population between 20 and 30 million people. So there's just a pretty big gap. But, but you know, you'll get a feel for it as we go. Right now, your feel I is mean, terrible. If our previous podcast is any judge, I will, I will not get a feel for it. I mean, it's a shame I did not get to use the sound effect of what it sounds like when you get it right. But you just have to wait. Someday. Someday. <laughs> Maybe. Hopefully. At, at least on the 30-second podcast, if you are paying attention. <laughs> All right. But anyways, Joe, are you ready to get into this? Too good, too bad? I'm ready. All right. Australia. So first, let's start out with their World Cup history. So Australia qualified for the first time in the World Cup in 1974. They didn't make it out of the group stage, but hey, they qualified. Then they didn't qualify again for the next 32 years, but they qualified in 2006 And Joe, in 2006, they did make it out of the group, and they faced Italy in the round of 16, which unfortunately they lost on a goal in the 95th minute to lose 1-0. Ugh, brutal, brutal. And they qualified in 2010, they qualified in 2014, but in both cases they did not make it out of the group stage. The 2014 World Cup in particular for them was not very good, they... Played three matches, they lost all three, and their goal differential was minus six. So they finished 30th out of 32 teams uh, at the last World Cup. So not great, but hey, they qualified again this year. They've got four in a row. It's better than the U.S. Let's look at their odds. So their odds to get out of the group, according to the betting markets, 25%. So bit of an underdog. Their odds to get to the quarterfinals. 7%. 7%. Odds to get to the semifinals, 2%. Odds to get to the finals, half a percent. Odds to win the World Cup, one-third of a percent. Ooh. So their odds to win, if you put money on them, is 300 to 1, which puts them 27th out of the 32 teams in the World Cup. And unsurprisingly, their FIFA World Cup ranking is 39th in the world. Now, we've got our first little Sean interjection, a Sakuru fan. Let's see what he thinks. He says, definitely further down on the too bad scale. He doesn't even say the too good scale because it's not a, not an issue. They've now qualified for the last World Cups, making it out of the group stage once in 2006. Hey, he said they won the Asian Cup in 2015. We're a mess off the field, which has led to FIFA stepping in and threatening to take over. Ooh, that's never good. That's not good. If you are so poorly run that FIFA is worried, that's a problem. And finally, currently, we do not have a coach. So that's also... (laughs) Sean's making a strong, strong case here. Might be a bit of a problem. But hey, they're at least better than five other teams, Joe. But they're definitely... The odds are are looking quite long for them uh, to, to make any noise. But hey... It would be very difficult for them to have a worse World Cup than they had four years ago. So that's something to look forward to. 
Well, I mean, the problem with the World Cup is that you only play a few games, so it would be possible for them to exactly have as bad a World Cup as they did four years ago. Well, if they could just get one point, that would be better. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Look, I mean, I, I think Sean, Sean acknowledges it, uh, and he's a fan of the team. The problem with the Socceroos is they're just, they're just too bad. You know, they just don't... The likeliest scenario for them is to be done with their World Cup experience within three games. Potentially to be, you know, for all intents and purposes, done after two games. I think, obviously, the upside to that is that anything that happens, winning a game, making it out of the group, would be hugely exciting. Yeah, this is very much... Because I think, look, if you're a U.S. fan, I don't think we were ever the worst team in our group, which, spoiler alert, Australia is. But even still, I think America... Yeah, America is much more in the Sweden situation. But look, in America, you're looking to make it out of the group. And that's, you know, you're hoping for more, but you're not yeah. expecting more. Obviously, for Australia, just making it out of the group would be an incredible, um, you know, victory. It's pretty uh, against the odds. You know, you get good money on that. But, you know, they're probably not going to make any noise after that. But look, the U.S. probably isn't either. Yeah, no, look, I mean... There's certainly a kinship between the Australian fans and the U.S. fans, not least of which is because we both call it soccer. Um, but I think that – no, and I think you're right. I think that, that had the U.S. been in the World Cup, well, we wouldn't be doing this podcast first of all. But also no one would argue in any rational way that the U.S. team had a shot at winning the entire World Cup. So you go into it knowing that you're going to – that you want to go as far as you can go. Yeah. And Australia's in the same boat, but as far as they can go might just not be quite far enough for me for what I want in terms of a enjoyable World Cup experience. I've I've become used to at least the expectation that my team should make it out of the group. Yeah. So I'm going to say this is a 2 out of 10. 2 out of 10. Ouch. I know. The lowest Sorry, score to date. <laughs> but hey. Maybe the group can lift them up just based on the other people in the group. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. There's plenty of, uh, there's, I mean, plenty of time to make up the difference. So they are in group C. The headliner of this group is Le Bleu, France. They have a 70% chance of winning the group, according to the odds makers, and a 90% chance to advance. The next team is the big rival of the the Swedes, Denmark. They are the second best team in the group. They've got a 15% chance to win, but a 60% chance to advance. So those two teams are one a heavy favorite and the other one a favorite to advance. And then at the bottom, we've got Peru and Australia, who actually have about similar chances to advance, about 25%. Peru, given a little higher percentage chance to win, they have about a 10% chance to win. Australia with a 5% chance to win. But basically, for either of them, they have to beat the other team. So that's important. And we were talking about scheduling a little bit before. I think the tough thing for Australia is their first game is against France. So yeah, that's rough. That's they're rough. probably going to be behind the eight ball to start out with. But, you know, I mean, if you're an Australia fan... The the group is not it's not a death sentence, right? What you're hoping for most of all is for Denmark to struggle 
which is not impossible. I mean, as my Swedish friends would call them, those filthy Danes are not exactly the best. Right. It's not like you have France and Germany in your group. The French are going to be good, though. French teams are known to have drama and implode, too. You could sort of see a scenario where Peru unexpectedly draws with Denmark. And yeah, Australia loses, or maybe they pull out, you know, they squeak out a tie while the French team, you know, sorts things out in their first game. And then Australia beats Peru, and then they're actually playing Denmark. Well, see, it's, it goes the other way. So their order of games, I think this this is actually good for them. They start with France, which, you know, you're right. If you're crafting a scenario, hey, the French, they're a mess, although they're actually, I think, really good this year. Yeah, I don't really think they're a mess favorites. this time. But then they play Denmark in the second game. And then they finish with Peru. So it is possible if Denmark struggles, that third game, you know, it's the thing where you know Denmark's going to be playing France and at the same time. And maybe Australia gets a thing where they pull out a win. Denmark has a, has a portion against France and they squeak through. Yeah, it's I mean, it's certainly possible. And, and of the groups that Australia can have, you almost want like if you're Australia, your goal is to get second place in your group. So you almost want to have a very, very strong team at the top. Yeah. That helps yeah. you. Right. And then you want to have the weakest of the second tier teams. And I, I wouldn't call Denmark the weakest, but they're not the strongest of the second tier teams either. So and then you want to have another scrub with you, which Peru is. OK, so that's not that's not a bad lineup there. And it's also from a from a fan perspective, it's also a fun group to watch too. I mean, France is France could could win it all this time. Denmark's a great team. Uh, I don't know much about Peru, but we're going to learn a lot about Peru. I'm sure they have very interesting things about them. So I'm going to say for Australia here, if this group actually gives them a little bit of a redemption, what did I give the last group that we did? You gave the group F, the group of death, an eight. This isn't quite that fun, but I do think I like that Australia got a group that they certainly will have a chance of making it out of. So let's give them a seven. And, you know, to one of the things you said, the Australia-France game, you know, maybe by the third game, they're going to be eliminated. But people are going to be watching that Australia-France game to see exactly what you're saying. Hey, France is a a tournament contender. Let's see how they open this up. And if Australia... Boy, if they could pull out a draw, if they can even just pull out a one-goal loss, that it, it might really set the stage for them. But you can also imagine a world where they lose like four-zero, and and, and and their whole tournament is it's is essentially yeah, over. It's basically yeah. done. <laughs> All right, but now, so we've got the group rated. Let's see how they got here. So Australia, of course, switched to the AFC. They were previously in the NFC. <laughs> Thank you. (laughs) So they belong to the Asian Football Conference. They were put in Group B. Now, the Asian Football Conference is tough, Joe. You know, people always make fun of CONCACAF because it's like the U.S. has to play on that, like, really trash-ass field in Trinidad and Tobago and all of these things. Well, get this. This was their group. Remember, this is Australia we're talking about here. Their group, in which they played a home and home with all of these teams, was with Jordan... Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Bangladesh. Oh, my God. So that's, <laughs> that's rough. Now, I would say I think the two best teams in the group are definitely Jordan. And actually, after the opening four games, after all teams had played each other in the round robin, 
the the fourth game Australia lost 2-0 to Jordan and they were actually behind Jordan in the group. But they turned it on, went on a little run and won their next four games and in the process of doing so outscored their opponents 19 to 1 in those wow. four games. So wow. they did finish up on top of their group with uh, very little drama. So the AFC, very similar to CONCACAF, after they do the initial group stage, the winners of those groups go to like a hex-type situation. And so there were six teams, and they all played each other, just like they do in CONCACAF. So Australia finished third in the hex. They finished behind Japan, who won, and Saudi Arabia, who finished second and beat them on goal differential. So both of them automatically qualified. But... The team that came third place had to play a home-and-home playoff with the other team that came third place in the other AFC thing, which was Syria, which is a really tough team to have to play a playoff against. But they go play at Syria. I don't even know how they play soccer in Syria, and I guess it's a little bummer for Syria that they got eliminated. Spoiler alert, but they play a 1-1 draw in Syria. Then they come home, and they play the final game at home. It's tied 1-1. It goes to extra time, and in extra time, Australian hero Tim Cahill scores the winning goal in the 109th minute, and they advance 3-2 in aggregate. They could just let Syria have that. Come on. They could not. No. (laughs) Hasn't that country suffered enough? Now, what do they get by winning the playoff against Syria? Well, now they go in the intercontinental playoff for the actual spot in the World Cup. So they, the AFC, everybody knows... They play the fourth person in CONCACAF. So this could have been us. Could have been us, but it wasn't. And it was Honduras. And so they fly all the way to Honduras. I mean, Australia, those Qantas jets are racking up the miles. They fly all the way to Honduras. They go have a nil-nil draw. And then this actually might be an advantage for them because I imagine like their flight situation is like way better than whatever the Honduras team is going in. Because they're always doing it. Plus, you know, all those players have like earned enough miles to gain status on whatever airline they fly on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, on Qantas, definitely. And the, oh, the yeah. Honduras players, they're not. They get upgraded to first class all the time. Yeah, definitely. But so Honduras, you know, at home with their, you know, home situation, they got the 0-0 draw. But then... The Australians fly back on the first class. The Honduras people are in like the steerage, the cargo area. Totally. And they just get blown out in the Australian National Stadium. The Socceroos win 3-1 behind Mile Jedinak's hat trick. And the Honduras goal was like in the after the 90th minute in stoppage time after they were already down 3-0. So it was just a blowout win. The Socceroos, you know, go in, get qualified to the World Cup with a bang eliminate the crap out of Honduras, and uh, they're in. And here's what Sean says. I mean, it's sort of a brutal brutal uh, pathway to qualification to have to go through that many playoff games. Yeah, here, let me listen to Sean. Sean says, what does he think about the road to qualification? Arduous. They have to play home and away legs against Jordan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Bangladesh, Japan, Saudi Arabia, <laughs> United Arab Emirates, Iraq, and Thailand. So that's combining both the first round and then the hex round. Then we have to defeat Syria to then have to play a sudden death leg against Honduras. But with Honduras, we win 3-1 at home to qualify, including a hat trick. Ooh, for the captain. Wow, look at that. Uh, The head coach resigned a few days later. 
presumably because he is sick of going to made-up countries and war zones to play soccer. <laughs> Harsh, but fair. So there you go. I mean, they, they've seen the world. They've done it all. But they made it, Joe. I mean, what kind of drama would have to happen in qualification that, you know, you spend all this time qualifying and then you actually make it to the World Cup, something that is not a given for Australia. And then you're like, fuck it. I'm out. <laughs> that's great. Look, that sounds pretty brutal. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. like I was looking at the schedule, those like home and home playoffs, like the Honduras one, they play in Honduras and then they play in Australia three days later, which is halfway oh, across the world. Like just imagine yeah. the, the, the time zone difference just to do that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it might take that long to get from Australia to Honduras. That might have been yeah. why they scheduled it that way. <laughs> Half the Honduras team didn't even make it on time. They yeah. got they got bumped from they, their flight. They were they were there for the second half. <laughs> they should have gotten that status. They wouldn't have gotten bumped, man. <laughs> That's all the Australian players. They were just kept putting extra staff, like buying the standby tickets. <laughs> Look, it is it is arduous. I mean, one thing that is an interesting comparison is that this is a team, well, both that, like, you look at Sweden, who, like, their pathway to qualification was going through some of the best of the best in the world. You would not describe anyone Australia played as the best of the best. I mean, the best team they played by far is Japan, which totally uh, is, is not a, a, an elite power. Though, right. you know, there's somebody. And Australia was, like, last the last team to make it in. They had to go through all those extra steps because they didn't get above third in their hex group. All that being said, I mean, like a for effort, man, like they really, they had to go the extra mile for it. So I don't, I, I can't rate them too low in this because man, all those games, they deserve something. Uh, so let's say five and a half out of 10, five and a half. I think it's a very fair score. Certainly not an emphatic road to qualification. You know, they're not. It's not like Sweden, no, who's eliminating no. these marquee teams. But, but they the put in the time, work. They yeah. put in the work. They yeah. put in the work. All right, category four. Fan emeritus David sends in the top player to watch. The top Great. player by David's take, and now we're actually going to have two answers for this because this is going to be David's take, and then we're going to have Sean's take. So David says Tom Rogic. He plays at Celtic Glasgow. He's 24 years old. He's an attacking midfielder. He scored seven goals in 33 matches for the national team. He's got a great shot, great at finishing, big, strong player, former futsal player. He played on the Australian Youth National Futsal Team, was the leading scorer during the AFC Championship. Wow. That could mean so many different things. I also don't know what futsal is, but anyways, his nickname... The Wizard of Oz. We got the magician and the wizard, man. Yeah. David has a type. In in FIFA, I think I've actually seen David do some uh, sleight of hand stuff. (laughs) Uh, FIFA 18, his scores are 75 and his potential is 81. Okay. Okay. Now, Sean. Sean says Aaron Mui is our best player. He's a midfielder in the Premier League for... Huddersfield Town. He's like Huddersfield Town. That's a team. Yeah, yeah that's a place. That's, that's a place. A team? Uh-huh. That's I don't a, think that's a so. team. He was previously signed by Manchester City. I mean, his last name is M O O Y. That's not a name. That's not a place. 
He was previously signed by Manchester City. I've heard of that. Manchester City is really good. Yes, they are. Towie's man is Tim Cahill, a 38-year-old striker who played for Everton for eight years and also New York in the MLS. He has played for the past three World Cups, scoring in each. Whether he plays next year probably depends on whoever becomes coach and if he is allowed to play with a walking stick. <laughs> Does that mean that Tim Cahill is going to be like, I don't like the coach, I'm not going to play? Or the new coach is going to be no, like... No, I think it's like the coach is like, you're 38 years old, you're not going to yeah, play. you can't play. Oh. Frankly, I want to start the movement now that hasn't already started, which I'm sure it has. Tim Cahill should be coaching the team. He should be. He should bring player back the coach? player coach. Player oh, coach, wow. which is one of my favorite things in the world. Wow. The player coach is great. Tim Cahill captained the team for a long time, I think. So 100%, he should be the coach. I have no idea what he's like on a personal level, so maybe that's a terrible idea. But um, Now, do you think if you're the player coach, you might suffer the problem of like leaving yourself in too long if you're being really terrible? I think you overcompensate. I think that's the problem. I think that you're like, well, I missed that pass, so I'm going to yank me and like yell at myself because you don't want to like seem like you're playing favorites. But see, the problem is I feel like you don't do that because I think these players all think they're really good. So like if it's Bill Russell being the player coach of the Celtics, like he's the best player. So it doesn't matter. He can always just put himself in. But like if this guy's old and terrible and he's starting himself, I don't know. And the guy's are like, come on, sub me in. Also, it's like hard. To, like, you can't even yell at him to sub me in. He's running around in the middle of the field. You have to like grab a player that's on the pitch and be like, hey, can you run over to Tim and say I'm ready to go? I'm warmed up. Well, that's the thing that I don't get is like who who who's who's the one getting the players to warm up on the sideline in that? I mean, it seems like the communication would be a problem. Maybe if you're a player coach, you get one of those little microphones like the uh, referees have. You can talk they to should somebody. Have that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. They should have that. It would not work just to be running over to the sideline constantly and saying like, you, you, you warm up. Well, if you're 38 years old, you can't be adding extra miles. Jesus. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, my... Uh, one second Google search here reveals that there is no movement currently to draft Tim Cahill as the next coach of the Socceroos. So you heard it here first, folks. What if they just go without a coach? It, you know, it certainly would not be the first time a team's done that. Because in my following of the U.S. men's national team disaster, everybody was saying all the they were saying Klinsman was terrible in the in-game tactics. And they were saying Bruce Arena was always bringing the wrong players and everything was you know, putting players in bad positions like. Maybe just let the players do it and see what happens. I think they should just, you know what I think they should do? I think they should have IBM's Watson. <laughs> they should do the first AI coach. I mean, no, think about it. Think about it. The Socceroos aren't that good. Right. We've, we've already talked about that. Wouldn't it be like super interesting if they're like, our coach is deep blue. He beat that guy in jeopardy. Let's see. We're going to plug all the tactics of football into this supercomputer it knows our players. It knows all their histories, all their tendencies, and it's going to set our starting lineup. It's going to tell us, you know, what our formation is, what our style of play is, and it's going to decide when to sub. You know, I love it because I feel like if you take a player who plays on like one side of the field and it's like the coach is like, hey, man, I think you should play on the other side of the field. The players can be like, I don't want to do that. Like, I like being where I'm comfortable. But if like Watson comes in and just spits out everybody playing these crazy positions, you know, you're going to be like, this seems weird, yeah, but fuck. like Watson, Watson what, knows, man. Let's try yeah. it. Like, we're yeah. not going to beat France doing what we know how to do. Like, let's try like, man, maybe Tim Cahill should be the goalie or something. <laughs> I, I think this is it. I think, I think AI coach, I mean, you'd have to make sure the algorithm is like good because, you know, maybe Watson is like, look, 
all my data shows Tim Cahill has never let a goal past him. Yeah. So he should be the <laughs> he should be the keeper. <laughs> the guy you have in keeper, you know, he lets in goals every other game. Yeah, yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> Letting Jordan score all those goals. And you know, another thing, this is super efficient. When you're doing the substituting, if that giant thing with the numbers on it, if that has like Bluetooth, like Watson can just directly put the numbers up on it. Like that guy doesn't even have to enter them in manually. Bluetooth, uh, Watson just pipes in the substitution. Yeah, but I think for show, you would want one of those giant like 1950 styles like room computers that is constantly splitting out, spitting out paper that has like the the tear off sides on it. <laughs> the president just running it over to the, the sideline official. And there has to be like a nerd in a lab coat who's looking at it saying like, Watson says we need to sub in Cahill. <laughs> you warm up. You go up in the stands. <laughs> You're cut from the team. <laughs> Bringing you was a mistake. It's it's a hundred percent, one hundred percent, what they should do for their coach. The goalie lets in one goal, and Watson immediately subs out the goalie. And is like, we don't need a goalie. We're losing. I mean, who knows? We need to get back in the game. Look, if if you're the Socceroos, why not at this point? Why not? Why not go with the AI manager? I don't even remember what category we're on. Top player to watch, Joe. I mean, it could be Watson. You could just assume that Watson is going to be the captain. But if we're going by the book here, we're looking at Tom Rogic, looking at Aaron Moy, and potentially the old man Cahill making his last run at, uh, at success. I will just say right off the bat, if, if they announce tomorrow CoachBot 9000, I'm, I'm 100% going to go back and revise... All of my rankings on Australia in only positive ways. Um, I'll make no, a first note. First of all, I think this is... The book can be reopened if they pick the coach and the coach is a computer. Absolutely. 100%. But only if that. Noted. Or robot. That's, that's, that's the only situation. A um, couple things of note here. So David, I'm starting to learn David's style of player to watch. He kind of likes the young players, the up and comers, not necessarily like the biggest name on the team which I like. He's given us the deep tracks. You know, these players to watch are not household names, nor will they like ever be household names, really. So so I don't think this is a great category for them. Uh, you know, like I said, with, with the asterisks that like if CoachBot 9000 ends up getting hired, we're definitely coming back and revising this score as well as many others. But this is like a three and a half out of 10. Three and a half. Wow. Sakuru is not off to a great start. History with the U.S. men's national team. From Fan Emeritus Luke. The U.S. national team has played Australia three times and they were all friendlies. They've won one, drawn one, and lost one. Their most recent matchup occurred in 2010 with the U.S. team winning 3-1. to one. The U.S. women's national team actually had a bit of a rivalry where they lost to the Australian team 3-1. to one, And that was like some sort of big upset. But on the men's side, it doesn't seem like there's much happening. Though... Luke doesn't quite mention it here, but Australia, I think, is very um, head of mind if you're a U.S. men's national team fan because that intercontinental playoff, it's like Australia that always totally seems was to be in say. it. So we're always like thinking of being in Australia. It's, it's interesting because, look, I mean, there's not much history there, but there is a sort of realization that Australia is in the U.S. spot. Yes. Had Honduras not scored that goal against was that Mexico or 
Panama, whatever, or Costa Rica, wherever they scored that goal against, that like officially knocked us out, where they actually won that game. Had Honduras not won that game, the U.S. would have been the fourth team. They would have played Australia, and they probably would have won. I mean, I guess in the form that they were in, losing to Trinidad and Tobago, who the hell knows? But like, so, so, so Australia. Yeah, but they weren't even o- trying in that game. I right. think they they would have been heavy favorites against Australia. So Australia is occupying the spot that would have been held, and you could argue that Australia is sort of in the World Cup, like by the grace of the U.S. team, not like the stronger team. Because I think the U.S. team, nine games out of ten, is better than Honduras not being in that spot. So you can't help but feel like they're occupying a spot. And I guess I'm curious, Dan, your perspective. In your sports fandom, when a team is like – because, you know, you have this with teams like every now and again. Like with my my NFL football watching, like I remember the Chargers would lose a terrible playoff game to like the Jets. And then the next game, the Patriots would beat the Jets because the Jets are bad. Yeah. And then you – and then after that, you'd be like, well, the Patriots are sort of in the spot that that the Jets sh- or, or that the Chargers should be in because they would have beat the Jets in this next round or whatever. So so I guess my question is, when there's a team that's occupying like your team's spot, does that make you like them more or like them less? When the Cubs beat the Nationals this year, all I wanted to see was the Cubs get destroyed by the Dodgers. And I hate the Dodgers because the Dodgers eliminated the Nationals last year. But I, I think, look, if the team's in my spot, I want them to go down. You know, I know some people some people think it's different. Some people are like, hey, if we lose to the champs, so be it. But, you know, the U.S. lost to Trinidad and Tobago. So there's really there's no way to, like, permute it. Because, like, maybe if we had played them in the Intercontinental thing and they had beaten us, then that's, like, that's one thing. But, you know, to your point, it's like we didn't even get to play them it's less direct. It's, it's hard to feel something because they're just so different. Right. It is less direct though. I, I think that part of me feels like, look, Australia, you're in the spot that the U S team like should have been in. Like, I hope you goddamn make something of it. Right. Like it's like, don't waste it. At least. I don't know. It feels more to me like ships passing in the night. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's a super strong connection there, good or bad. So let's just give this a, solid four out of 10, four out of 10, a lot of variety in that category, but I guess they're about the same as Sweden. I'd say very little. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Right in the middle. All right. Fan culture, fan emeritus Yannick. Most of the Australian fans described being a fan of the soccer is to be frustrating, but they are always happy to push the big boys. Australian fans do not often go to big tournaments just because it's always very, very far away. All in all, Aussie fans seem to be not as involved in the game as other nations, maybe because they like rugby more or other sports, but what they like, what Aussies like to see in their players is determination. They want a fighting player over a technically adept player every time. Also, Australians are the first team to have a way to watch their games. Barbecue and a lot of beer. Wow. (laughs) Who, Who could have thought of that? Uh, it seems that they're very friendly folks. Their chance. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. Sure. Can't go wrong with Straya Cunt. I don't know that one. The Land Down Under by Men at Work. That's apparently that's a, quite the anthem. And some Aussies consider getting told to sit down as an official chant. 
<laughs> rivals. The trans-Tasman rivalry with New Zealand is their biggest rival. But since Australia left the Oceania Federation, the OFC, to join the AFC, they do not play as often. So that's uh, the rivalry is a little less heated. In Asia, their main rival is Japan. They've played a lot in recent years, like the Asian Cup Final in 2011. Some people even consider Uruguay and other former British colonies as their rivals. Now, here's the inside opinion. Sean, soccer will never be the number one sport here, but most sports fans have an interest in the Socceroos and at least get on board for the World Cup and the qualifiers. He linked to the stadium going nuts when the Australians qualified in 2005, which was the first time in a long time. And he says most people will be able to tell you where they were at the moment when Australia qualified for the World Cup after that huge drought. It's an iconic moment in Australian sporting history. And Sean recounts his tale of sitting on a sticky floor in an Irish pub drinking beer. He says the Mm. beer was mediocre, but the celebration was awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's actually a lot of corollaries between the U.S. soccer fandom and the Australian soccer fandom in that, like, it is not the first, second, or third most popular sport. Maybe maybe you could even say that U.S. fans are more into soccer than Australian fans are. But it definitely doesn't seem like, you know, they're not, they're not living or dying by the sport of soccer or by what happens in the World Cup. Uh, though maybe a little bit of success would help that, but it doesn't seem like the most intense fan culture. Would you agree, Dan? I would have to say, I mean, knowing what I know about the Australians, they're big sporting fans, but man, they love, I mean, rugby, Aussie rules, football, these sports have a lot in common where it's big, tough Australians beating the shit out of each other. But, but, but let's say, okay, so we're talking about the country as a whole, but the people who are, big soccer fans in Australia. I mean, as you said, like they know how to be sporting fans, right? Like they are like fun. They're rowdy. They get excited. They, they drink a lot of beer. Like, like it's not like they're boring fans. The ones who are fans of the team. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, they're, they're good sporting people. I I mean, I think the point is very true that when you're so isolated, I I mean, I guess the, the thing is you're playing the home and home. So it seems like that all the home games are actually probably in like the two major big cities, which actually is kind right. of cool. Cause if you live in the U S like, you know, they play maybe one game in San Francisco or something in the qualifying, but you know, they, they're spreading them all throughout the U S but it seems in Australia, they're probably a little more concentrated, you know, but at the same time, yeah, it's clearly not the number one sport. So. Yeah. I, I think unfortunately this is not a great category for them either because there's not a, you know, I'm sure if we were talking about, you know, the international rugby tournament, we'd be, you know, the Australian fans would be getting a 10 out of 10. Definitely. But in this category, it's just not quite there. So let's say two and a half out of 10. Two and a half. Wow. I know. All right. Take that two and a half and glide directly into the atrocities category. Well, see if they can make a recovery, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. All right. From Fan Emeritus, Josh, PhD. Australia, my adoptive home. He actually teaches history in Australia. So, oh, wow. But he teaches U.S. history, but he's very familiar. Australia, not great 
in this category. The country has some pretty bad stuff in its past, particularly relating to violence against indigenous Australians. As a settler colonial society, all of the land of Australia was forcibly taken from its earlier inhabitants. Most of the country was claimed by the British Empire under the doctrine of terra nullius. There were also many massacres of indigenous Australians as settlers and indigenous fought over land. Then, in the 20th century, there was a set of Australian government policies that amounted to removing indigenous children from their families by force. This was ostensibly for their benefit, to quote-unquote civilize them, but the children were taken to terrible orphanages. Many of the children in those orphanages experienced sexual assault. Records of birth parents were not kept, so many children were never able to reunite with their family, leading these children to be dubbed the Stolen Generations. This practice lasted through the 1960s. That said, there have been attempts to atone for this. There was a high court ruling known as Mabo v. Queensland that acknowledged indigenous land, indigenous land rights. In 2008, there was a national apology by Prime Minister Kevin Rudd to Australia's indigenous peoples, particularly in response to the Stolen Generations policy. That said, beyond an official apology, it's unclear how exactly the country will atone for this, and by most quality-of-life metrics, indigenous Australians are in much worse shape than other Australians. So, on the whole, terrible past, but at least they've taken some steps to atone for it. Atrocity level, at least they feel bad about it. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, so first of all, I, I think before we talk about this category, we should acknowledge the fact that we are not talking about U.S. atrocities because the U.S. team is not a team we can talk about in the World Cup. But like we're not absolving the, or, you know, I, I'm not saying that any team, any country is worse than things that our own country has done. And once again, Australia has a history that is very much the mirror image of the U.S. history. Um, and I guess you could say as Josh points out that like, I don't think the U S has ever like officially apologized to native Americans. Yeah. I mean, are the president of the United States in a speech that was about giving <laughs> rewards to <laughs> native Americans who risked their lives for the military made fun of a U.S. Senator using a derogatory term. So the U S isn't doing so hot. Yeah. Yeah. And we do uh, have a, a sport team called uh the washington redskins so that that also doesn't help we're not talking about the u.s though joe i'm just saying as a point of reference like i get i get those atrocities and 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 it is better that um you know australia has acknowledged it but i think as josh points out like acknowledging your your history and also taking steps to remediate the the generational impacts of that are two very different things and it seems like Australia has not gone that step yet. And I think that we are going to probably talk about some countries who have past atrocities who actually have done a lot. So I think that that is something that Australia should be doing and that's going to knock them down. So let's say three and a half out of ten. Three and a half. I forgot to uh, give Sean's take, but I don't. I was going to say, notice Sean didn't weigh in on that one. Yeah, no. Sean says aboriginals would be a lot better off if white people never came here. And we hold refugees in inhuman offshore detention centers. Oof. He says, we aren't at Germany level, but I'm sure we'll rate in the upper half for this category. I don't think we've done anything especially horrible to the Jews. <laughs> so thank God for that. At least Sean is uh, self-aware. Yeah. Look, he's, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. 
All right. What's the the atrocities category is a, an important category for the ranking, but that's that's like our medicine. Now, now we get to have some some sugar, some sweets. The biggest celebrity. All right. Let's go. I mean, let's do it. Honorable mentions: Kate Blanchett, Liam Hemsworth, Iggy Azalea, Kylie Minogue, Keith Urban. R.I.P. Heath Ledger. Wow. I mean, those are the honorable mentions. That's, I mean, that's the honorable mentions. What's on the podium? My God. Bronze medalist is the brother of one of the honorable mentions, Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. Hemsworth was the 2014 People's Sexiest Man Alive and starred in Snow White and the Huntsman and the horror comedy flick Cabin in the Woods. Hemsworth was also a contestant on Dancing with the Stars Australia. He is most known for his role, though, as Thor, the god of thunder in Marvel's cinematic universe. His character has quickly become one of the most popular heroes. His most recent film, Thor Ragnarok, has grossed over $500 million at the box office. His devotional level to the Australian national team is unknown, but... He is an avid Aussie Rules football fan supporting the Western Bulldogs. He clocks in at 2.8 million Twitter followers. I mean, one of the biggest stars in America is getting the bronze medal. I can't even yeah. imagine what's next. Silver medalist. She was in the same show as the gold medalist from Sweden. She actually played his wife in the show Big Little Lies, Nicole Kidman. Actress, easily the most accomplished of the Aussie celebs, Kidman has been nominated for and won Golden Globes, Emmys, and Academy Awards. She is currently married to the country music star and honorable mention, Keith Urban. For her charity work around the world, she is a companion in the Order of Australia, which is one step between knight and dame. Wow, knight and dame, that's two different things. Her notable films include Batman Forever... The others in Moulin Rouge. In 2005, she was 45th on the Forbes 100 list, but her career has been relatively quiet until she had a bit of resurgence in 2016 for her lead role in Big Little Lies, for which she won an Emmy. Her list of accomplishments is impressive, but it's not enough to give her the gold slot, but she's happily and well-deserved in the silver medal slot. I'm gonna I'm gonna posit a theory here that Karsten was a really big fan of Big Little Lies. <laughs> he he really really enjoyed that miniseries. Yeah, that was pretty good. It had really good uh, really good intro music. Big fan right, of that. Well, I mean, it's worth watching. No, look, you know that's good. That's good. Karsten likes it. But look, Joe, the gold medalist. I know you love this guy. I think I know who it is. But go ahead. I mean, come on. It's Hugh Jackman, Joe. Of course. It's Wolverine. With a net worth of $100 million, Hugh Jackman takes home the gold. Wow. Literally and in this contest. Not only can he act, he can sing too. He starred in the big screen version of Les Miserables. Like Hemsworth, Hugh Jackman is most known for his role as a superhero. There's perhaps no actor more synonymous with a superhero role than Jackman is to Wolverine. He starred in eight movies, including three standalone films as Wolverine. That's insane. In 2008, Hugh Jackman was People's Sexiest Man Alive. He was offered the role of James Bond prior to Daniel Craig, 
but turned it down. That's pretty baller. 11.6 million Twitter followers. So, I mean, obviously, Hugh Jackman, you don't get much better than that. But let me ask this question, though. What do we do? Like, and, and maybe Karsten needs to add this to his research. Like, what do you do if there's like a Hall of Shame celebrity? Like, for example, if you were to say like the most notable living Holocaust denier slash anti-Semite, most people would say Mel Gibson, who also happens to be Australian. Oh, I didn't know he was Australian. Wow. So do you knock down Hugh Jackman for his ties to Mel Gibson? I mean, he doesn't have any ties to Mel, but he's from the same country as Mel Gibson. I guess that's not really fair. I, I can bring in Sean. Sean, there was, of course, a lot of overlap here, but Sean brought up another Australian that I don't think is held in the highest esteem, Rupert Murdoch. And Sean specifically yeah. notes Rupert Murdoch is Australian and he's a monster. Well, I don't think you're going to get a list much deeper than the deep bench of Australian celebrities. And I think it's a pretty strong list. The Mel Gibson factor aside, I think, and the <laughs> and the Rupert Murdoch factor aside, uh, it's a it's a pretty great list. So we know that there are both great and terrible people that come from Australia. Let's say eight and a half out of ten. Eight and a half. I uh, I mean, look, it's not up to me to judge, but Australia is like a super popular country with all of these stars that are all English speaking. I mean. I don't know who, what stars you think would be coming out of some of these other countries. You know, the uh, Uruguay stars, Joe, the Costa Rican stars. I mean, eight and a half. I don't know. I feel like. Yeah, hold on, uh, hold on, hold on. But can't you see that it might be a 10 that then loses a point and a half for having the founder of Fox News and a famous anti-Semite as like two of their most prominent exports? Okay, if that's how you want to judge it, Joe, that's fine. And they only lost a point and a half. Come on. All right, all right. What? Look, it's your ranking system, Joe. Look, I'm just calling offsides and onside. (laughs) (laughs) Did it cross the line or didn't it cross the line? That's it. That's right. No, they have they have technology for that now. Yeah. Well, whether it buzzes or not, you know. (laughs) System of government, head of state. From Fan Emeritus Bez. Australia ranks as one of the best countries to live in the world by international comparisons of wealth, education, health, and quality of life. The sixth largest country by landmass's population is comparatively small, with most people living around the eastern and southeastern coastlines. The country's first inhabitants, the Aboriginal people, are believed to have migrated from Asia tens of thousands of years before the arrival of British settlers in 1788. They now make up less than 3% of Australia's population. Years of mass immigration after the Second World War heralded sweeping demographic changes, making modern Australia one of the world's most multicultural countries. But migration continues to be a sensitive issue politically. In shaping its foreign and economic policy, Australia first looked to Europe and the U.S., but in the last 20 years has developed stronger ties with Asia. It has acted as a peacekeeper in the region, sending missions to the Solomon Islands, East Timor, and Papua New Guinea. Although Australia remains part of the British Commonwealth with Queen Elizabeth as the head of state, the future role of the monarchy has been a recurring issue in politics. An aging population, pressure on infrastructure, and environmental concerns are some of the long-term challenges. Hey, man, we're reading from the same... That's that's from Homeland Handbook. 
The Australian political system is made from merging the British and American systems. There are two chambers of Congress with a strong Senate and House of Representatives. Australia makes voting compulsory with significant fines for non-participation. Oh, I like that. This means voting every three years. Each different strait of Australia has a regional legislature that is similar to the national parliament. The Labour Party and Liberal Party fight for power in a two-party system, but this often changes given the three-year terms. In recent times, both parties have become increasingly centrist and moderate. Both now support tackling climate change, allowing abortion, and supporting gay marriage. I wonder which party was against those various things. Whichever party is in government when the Ashes Cricket Series is on is impacted in elections depending on the result. If Australia beat <laughs> England, then the government is more popular. And if the Aussies lose, then the government is less popular. Unfortunately, it seems that the Australians, which he calls the convicts, will lose this year. You know, People got to keep their personal. I feel like this is a little some shade is being thrown here. He says recently Australia held a referendum. That allowed gay marriage, which passed with 62% of the vote. Now, who's the head of state, you might ask? Well, fan emeritus Ryan has the information. It is Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. What you might like about him, Joe. Jobs have consistently grown, just like our president, Donald Trump. Same-sex marriage allowed now under his prime ministership. He has no idea if the prime minister was for or against this. He's a supporter of clean energy, even though their biggest export is coal. And apparently he signed the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement. What you might not like about him, he, his biggest controversy is over a photo of him holding a beer and his baby granddaughter at the same time. Wait, was it going to get worse or was that it? I, I think of the three things, that may be the worst, but I don't know. He says, he says the other bad things are... He hasn't done much in the last year and the China-Australia free trade agreement. So clearly that's controversial in Australian circles. Now I'll give you Sean's take. We are part of the Commonwealth, so we have the royal family, which is stupid. We have a prime minister and history of getting them ousted by their political party. Of the last five governments, three were knifed by their own party and replaced as prime minister. Current prime minister is Malcolm Turnbull, who is a blob of nothingness who hasn't done much. (laughs) (laughs) there you go yeah i mean it's weird that they would still be a commonwealth of the british monarchy like what like like i don't do they not get the memo that everyone else was like no no we're not interested in that anymore yeah because i think their money definitely has a lot of queen stuff on it yeah i get that like back in the day england probably could have kept that like information secret from australia like, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, they're fine. Yeah, we still have America. They're good. Yeah, they're happy. But, like, once the fax machine came about. I mean, we know they travel the world so much just to qualify. So, I mean, even if there was no fax machine or anything, just by going to all these games and just, like, chatting with the other team, they'd figure it out. Maybe that's part of the deal. Maybe they're like, look, look, Australia, don't tell your people that that everyone else has left the Commonwealth. And in return... Any of your handsome males that leave the country get to be famous actors anywhere they go. Boom. Boom. Choice choice superhero roles. Don't worry about it. Yeah. yeah it's, it's working out, Joe. Don't mess with success. <laughs> I said in the last episode, I'm all for ceremonial monarchies. This is like even more ceremonial because it's someone else's monarchy. But it doesn't have the same benefit of like regional pride because it's someone else's monarchy. You're, you're still sort of like 
a colony. Yeah. I don't know if I love that. And, you know, their, you know, current prime minister sounds kind of boring. So uh, that's not great either. But all in all, I think it's a country moving in the right direction on energy policy. Uh, It seems like they're moving in the right direction on civil rights. So let's give them a solid four and a half out out of 10. Four and a half. Not competing with the Swedes, boy. Really, and then not much of anything except for those celebrities. But Joe, well, you know the kit. This is always a wild card. What do you think of their kit? And as you are looking at it and and really deeply studying it, I'll tell you what Sean thinks about it. Sean says, Sean is talking about not only the kit but also just the aura of the the soccer. This is a little blend of the kit and the team culture. The name Socceroos. Ridiculous. Makes no sense. It's a middle finger to all the pure football nations. Fuck you. We don't care and we'll name our team after soccer. Kangaroos are definitely strong in the foot and leg area, so that is intimidating for a soccer match. The jersey is traditionally gold with some green. I mean, the actual kit is a little bit boring. I mean, it's gold with some green. Almost looks like Brazil. But Dan, check out what I just sent you. This is their crest. The crest appears to be a kangaroo mm-hmm. in emu, I believe. Or an ostrich. I can't really tell. I think they're this. Yeah, they're, they're similar. I think it's an emu. I think emus have significance to Australia. Mm-hmm. And there appears to be a shield with six things on it, of which I have no idea the significance. I don't know. It's pretty nice. I love it. I love it. The other thing I like about it is that the kangaroo is holding the shield, but the emu is not, which leads me to believe that either... In a friendly way, the kangaroo is showing the shield to the emu. Or in an unfriendly way, he's defending himself or herself against a imminent emu attack. See, I see it differently, Joe. I see that the kangaroo is sort of leaning on the shield, and they're engaging in friendly banter about how excited they are to watch the socceroos. Oh, yeah. It'd be interesting if the shield was like a table, and you put two like Australian beers on the table. Yeah, then I mean, I see what you're saying because the kangaroo's right hand is ambiguous. The kangaroo's left hand is not ambiguous. We see that. We know what it's up to. It's either grasping or leaning on. But that right hand could be in a relaxed pose or it could be in sort of a an defensive pose. And we're, we're not quite sure. But not not every team has a crest like this. I mean, this is nice. It looks nice. There's obviously some symbolism to the various birds and dragon and crowns and crosses that are on the crest itself it's possible those are the six states of australia but i I don't want to go out on a limb here i mean that seems like a as good an answer as anything else i also like that it's a crest with a crest in the crest that's true (laughs) it's really layers upon layers yes uh you know the overall kit is sort of cribbing brazil's style but i love a good crest it's a good crest you're proud of that yeah, absolutely. So let's say seven out of ten. Seven out of ten. I mean, look, they need all the help they can they can get, Joe. I love the score. Now, the national anthem. Now, this is going to be fun because it's going to be in English. So here's the origin story. The move to replace God Save the Queen with an anthem unique to Australia began as early as the 1820s. Over the decade, public opinion has been polled and numerous competitions held to find a suitable song. They tried to hold contests in the 40s and 50s and finally conducted a national poll about it. Advance Australia Fair 
won 43%, Waltzing Matilda, 28%, God Save the Queen, 18%, and Song of Australia, 9.5%. So, Peter Dodd McCormick's Advance Australia Fair was officially declared Australia's national anthem by the Governor General on the 19th of April, 1984, close to 160 years after the first alternative anthems were put forward. Very fast moving. So, what is the focus of this anthem? It's about natural beauty. Talks about golden soil, radiant southern crosses, boundless plains to share. Sounds like Australia. Fun facts. It wasn't always just about natural beauty. There used to be a verse about British imperialism when gallant cook from Albion sailed to trace white oceans over. True British courage bore him on till he landed on our shore. Then here he raised old England's flag, the standard of the brave. Presumably that has been cut out. Now, much like the United States, they also have people not standing for the anthem to protest Australia's treatment of Aborigines. Yeah. Apparently, going back to that uh, vote, some people still like Waltzing Matilda, and that has been described as the country's unofficial national anthem, and is about a guy stealing sheep. But... This is Advance Australia Fair. I mean, I could see why people take a knee during that because it's fucking long, man. <laughs> like just standing that long would be rough. The Australians, they're very tough. You know, they're <laughs> they have, big, big, strong people. They have anthem endurance. That's what I'll say about them. You know, maybe that's why they voted for it. The people are like, hey, 
let's vote for the longest one possible. So our children will have to be like super strong. Yeah. Look, this one has to be great. It's literally 16 minutes long. (laughs) Again, Uh, there are some actual anthems that are like 10 minutes long. So (laughs) this this one's like a novella by comparison. I mean, I could see why people find it a little bit like dismissive of the Aboriginal experience in Australia. For example, the line, uh, for those who've come across the sea, we've boundless planes to share. So it's not, it's yeah. not for the people who are here. It's, it's for the people yeah. who came. Uh, yeah. And, and share there is a very like generous uh, description <laughs> yeah. of what No, happened. in fact, in the official lyrics, share is in quotation marks. It's they're <laughs> sharing it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I can see how it's a problematic anthem. Uh, yeah, let's let's give this sucker a uh, three out of ten. Three out of ten. All right, Joe. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> look, if you were going to pick any beer from Australia, I'm not sure VB is the uh, the the best representative. But what did you think of the VB? You know what? I think it's good. I respect a country that knows what it's good at. They like a beer. They're not going to do a fancy cocktail. You know me, Dan. I'm not the biggest beer drinker in the world. But I appreciate that I could have gone out into the streets of Seattle, Washington, where I live, and asked 10 people, hey, I'm doing uh, a podcast about Australia. What should I drink? And 10 out of 10 would have said beer. Well, Australians also make good wine, Joe. 8 out of 10 would have said beer. 2 out of 10 would have mentioned that, that wine with the kangaroo on it. Yeah. Yellowtail. It's big business. Yeah. Once the coal industry goes down and the steel goes away, that might be up there in the exports. No, I think the Australian, yeah, wine region is is really going to benefit from global warming. You know what? It, it's a very fine beer. Seven out of ten. Seven out of ten. Doing everything you can, Joe. A generous seven them, out of ten. Push them over the finish line. Let's see. Their final score comes out 58. So their average is a little above 4.8. So their uh their average category is uh is below 5, but just barely below 5. Oh, and uh, closing remarks, closing remarks from Superfan Bez. He says, "Got to love them and hate them at the same time. Every single World Cup, they turn up and play better than expected but still lose." However, you can't help but feel sorry for them after they unfairly lost to the Italians in 2006. Oh, wow. I don't know. I wonder what if there was some chicanery in that uh, extra time goal by the Italians. Still, this is probably the tournament that they finally disappoint their supporters. Good, because they are currently humiliating England in the ashes. <laughs> Wait, how did the last one not disappoint their supporters going 0-3 with a minus 6 goal differential? But anyways, I mean, I mean, just wait, just wait till it's like a minus 10. <laughs> I feel like they could they can get a point out of this group. Look, I think I think if I were rooting for the Socceroos, it, it, it would be such a satisfying World Cup experience if they were to actually make it out of that group, which is going to be a tough group for them. But I think as we talked about, I think there's a pathway and it would be so exciting. But I, I think it's hard for me to pick a team where I would want to be rooting for the team. And I might be rooting for the team more than many people from that country, which seems tough to me. And as we entered into this podcast, I made one promise to Sean. Well, he asked me for one promise, which was that I wouldn't advance Australia and then kick them out right away. 
And I think I can follow up on that promise by saying that, unfortunately, Australia is not going to move on to the Sweet 16. However, though, if they hire a computer as their coach, you might 100% bring they're moving in. on. 100%. So that is, I'm going to put a no, but with a little asterisk by it, just in case. Yes, it's true. It's true. Look, ball's in your court, Australia. <laughs> Soccer I mean, Association. That the coach, the the coaching search is hopefully is wide open. You know they should be looking at all candidates. I think too many of these teams make the mistake of only looking at human candidates. On a not totally joking note, they talk about how AI is going to like take over like half these jobs. Is anyone talking about AI coaching? I mean, I guess I should probably talk about AI like assisted coaching. Yeah, but you know, I think to your point. A lot of, like, they use computers and analytics or anything, but I don't think they ever put it in a computer and just be like, here are the what the players are good at, here are the general rules of the game, like, you know, what should they do? And, you know, there's, a, there's probably, the thing is, you'd have to have somebody who does it, and then you'd have to somehow get some team to trust it. I mean, maybe what we should do is we should make some sort of AI, then buy some, like, fifth-level english premier league team or english team and then we like work our way up i mean are you allowed to have two goalies like what can can we do some crazy shit well you can have as many people in the goal as possible only one person's allowed to actually touch the ball Hmm. i'm just wondering if there's any like some real crazy things that we could manipulate here but damn we don't we don't need to figure that out that's what the ai does yeah we just we just tell the ai look here are the actual rules but don't be don't feel bound by any of the like presumed rules of yeah. soccer. You know, Joe, it's interesting and I think there's something there. But now is not the time for us to figure that out. Hopefully, hopefully the Australians Hopefully the soccer rules test it out. Yeah, hopefully now is the time for them. But for us, this podcast is over. Unfortunately, the soccer rules did not make it. But everybody out there, if you are a soccer fan or if you happen to be a fan or interested observer, in Costa Rica, Uruguay, or Russia, send in your feedback because we are going to do all three of those next week live from Mexico while everybody else is taking their holiday Christmas time off. We are going to be hard at work turning out podcasts for your listening pleasure. So get in your feedback. Fortunately, we've already got all the research in from our great fan Emeriti. A big thank you to them for their work here. I mean, Joe, what did you think? Do you think any of them should get cut? Or were you happy with the uh, the level of quality there? The research is impeccable. And compared to our researcher on our previous podcast, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's night and day. Night and day. <laughs> all right. So there you go. Folks, get in that feedback. I hope you enjoyed it. And look, if you're a Sakuru fan, just focus on those ashes. Apparently, you're doing great at that. Thanks, Dan.